0: My name is Sean, and I'm an alcoholic. I lost my backup singer.
1: Through
0: the grace of God and strong sponsorship and the steps and the traditions and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, I've been sober since April 24, 1974, and I'm very grateful for that. <laughs> you should be grateful, too, because I, I'm a dangerous drunk. I uh, I tended to get people into trouble. I mean, I never drank alone. I drank with gangs. And, um, and so uh, I, I, I was the one that was always saying, let's go party. And for some reason, you always did. And, uh, and then you didn't seem to get arrested and stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I was just a bad dude to be around. If I have known I was going to be sober this long, I would really have tried to be a better example. But um, I really wasn't planning on being here this long. You know, I just kind of wanted to get my act together and... Get on with my life, and uh, and here I am, and I, I've got a dear friend of mine who some of you may know, named Clara Selden. and Claire and I got sober together, and every every year we call each other, and uh, and we say, Claire, this is the year we got to be, you know, we got to we got to be examples of this thing this year, and uh, so far we're uh, we're working on that. I um I, I've had a little a little trouble. I I woke up. Um, Yesterday morning, with no voice, I could not speak, and <laughs> I didn't call Marianne and tell her that uh, she had enough on her plate. And uh, oh man! So on the way to the airport yesterday, I stopped in at the clinic where my doctor is, and uh, and my doctor wasn't in, so I got this other doctor, and I said, "I'm getting on a plane to go to Cleveland because I have to talk at a, at a gathering," and that was about what I could get out, and. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, it was fairly obvious I was in trouble We're talking. Well, this jerk wanted to know, why, why are you going to Cincinnati? I mean, well, I'm going to talk at this bank. Oh, yeah, what for? What's it about? I mean, he chatted me up. I mean, I'm, I'm explaining Alcoholics Anonymous and the tradition. I, I can't
1: talk. I mean, what, you know.
0: So finally, he said, it's either viral or it's, or, uh, um, it's an infection. So we're going to give you something for both. So I got throat lozenges and penicillin so I'm, uh, I can talk today, which I'm, I'm delighted about. So this... this I don't know how long this voice is going to last. This may be a a short lead, as they say. I was um, I was born in a typical alcoholic home. My father was a drunk, and my mother was a saint, and um, and they did that dance. So I knew about alcoholism. I come from a large Irish Catholic family, and you know, if it weren't for Irish Catholic drunks, AA would be meeting in a phone booth in Akron. You know, we're God invented alcoholism to keep the Irish from ruling the world, and it worked. And so, I mean, I, you know, everybody I knew was falling down drunk or, you know, I, it's really funny. You, If, if you come from an Irish family and you start asking people about uncles, everybody's got an uncle who lost an arm on a railroad track. I mean, I got two of them. As a kid, I couldn't understand, you know, and I, as a child, it was explained to me that Uncle Joe fell asleep on a railroad track.
1: <laughs>
0: fell asleep, you know. Two of them with no arms, but they had a great party. So at any rate, what I got to, I, I got to see the dynamics of alcoholism and when it came to be 14 years old and, you know, when when it's time to change, uh, it looked like it was really, uh, really, puberty looked like a, it didn't look really fun, so I skipped it. Basically, um, I had noticed that if you drink, drink a few things, you can make instant changes, and so I started doing that. So I started drinking to get drunk when I was 14 years old. When I was 17 years old, my, my mother gave me some diet pills. Uh, God bless that woman. And um, I have to stop right here and explain to you that I am an impure alcoholic. Um, I, I, I don't want to, uh, to, to mislead you. I, uh, I, I, um, I ingested a lot of outside issues as well as drinking. I, you know, I, I, don't, uh, I don't really drink alcohol, but I used a lot of drugs to either enhance or diminish the effects of alcohol. But alcohol was always my first and last love. I mean the reason I'm standing here tonight is that I love to drink. I mean, let's get that out of the way. I mean, I, you know, I just loved it. I not only really love the effect, I love the festivals, you know, I love the, the ice cubes and the toothpicks with the garbage on them, and I, I love I stupid drinks and coconut shells with umbrellas, and I mean, I, I love those intense intellectual conversations we got into it, you know, where we reappointed the Supreme Court, you know, I love the, you know, I, I, I love those, meaningful relationships that sometimes lasted all night you know I
1: just I just
0: I just loved everything about it I mean when I wasn't drinking I felt like there were parts of me missing you know but man the wonderful thing you know the the problem that we've got nowadays is that the medical profession the medical profession has discovered we're big business and the, the problem is is that they they treat us like we're normal people who drink too much and what they don't understand is that I drink too much to be a normal person you know when I was drinking I felt good when I was not drinking, I was shy, I was irritable, like I I didn't spit anywhere. But when I was drinking, oh, man, oh, well, you know, you know, oh, you know, I was ice skating when I was drinking, you know, I just, and and and, and the problem with drinking for me, I've heard people from this podium say that, that, uh, by the way, I'm I i, I I'm honored to be the 58th speaker, I, you've had 57 fabulous speakers in me, and, uh, I, I uh, <laughs> the, uh, the thing about it is, is people say that, that drinking stopped working for them, so they came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, if, if, if drinking had ever stopped working for me, I would have stop drinking. It never stopped working for me. I mean, there was always a moment, and I don't know whether it was after the, the fourth scotch and the second joint, or whether it was, you know, the, the third diet pill with the fourth tequila. I don't know what the combination was, but there was always a moment, from the time I was 14 years old to the night before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, when everything came together when everything worked, you know? When I was sexy but sensitive, you know? Tough but a nice guy. A great dancer but fast with my fists, you know? (laughs) A con but kind of gently naive, you know? I was just fabulous. I mean, I just... I could talk to you, I could dance with you, I could do God knows what with you. You know, it just, it was absolutely wonderful. And it happened every time I drank. Every time I had that moment, you know? And then it would just start to slip a little, you know? So I'd have another one just to kind of prop up the feeling. And then, you know, like in Star Trek when they hit warp speed and it goes whoosh, you know? That would happen to me, you know? It'd be an hour and a half later, and I'd be standing there, and there'd be 15 people standing around me going,
1: "Ah!" You know? And I knew
0: I'd done it again, you know?
1: Something had (laughs) happened.
0: I'd done something unspeakable to the family pet in the powder room. You know, something had happened. I mean, just something had gone terribly wrong again, you know? But, man, that feeling was wonderful. And every time it happened, the problem was is that the price kept getting... Higher and higher and higher, and the consequences kept getting worse and worse and worse. But I got addicted to that perfection, that moment, that 90 seconds, whatever it was. Man, it was great. And let me tell you, when I crawled into Alcoholics Anonymous and you told me I was never going to feel like that again, I was angry. You know? I was never going to have any fun again. My whole life was going to be a cloudy day. It was going to rain for the rest of my sobriety, man. You know? I was going to have to be good. I was going to have to be nice to a bunch of people I wouldn't even have drank with. You know? I mean, what the hell was a spiffy guy like me doing in a place like this? <laughs> and let me tell you, I tried everything I could to avoid coming here. I, uh, I had some success in my life. By the time I was 21, I decided I had a talent that the world couldn't live without, so I... I went to New York with 50 bucks in my pocket, and two months later, I had a Broadway show, and I did a whole lot of that kind of stuff, and roared around in limousines and went to parties, and it was the 60s, and it was absolutely nuts, and we were having a ball, and it was just crazy. It was just, yeah, I, it, it, it was like a movie. It was just wild, and uh, and the only trouble was, by the time I was in my mid-20s, I was drinking a quart of scotch a day, and I picked up a little non-habit-forming marijuana habit, and I... Um, I was working the docks. Not the the kind where the ships come in, but uh, doctors. I I love medical doctors. They're such idiots. You know, it's just just wonderful. You know, I, I think it's silly to buy drugs in alleys. I mean, the best thing to do is to memorize symptoms. You know, one of the things I found out very early is that doctors don't know how to say goodbye. The only way they can get you out of their office is to write something. And if you give them the right information, they'll write what you want. So I did that. I always had three of them that I would frequently visit with various days. I was having trouble sleeping. My weight was out of control. I was feeling a lot of stress. I think I was probably mildly depressed, whatever the hell it was, and they would give me medication. And then we would meet for drinks, and we'd swap pills. I got an orange one. What's your yellow one like? It was great. I lived in the wonderful world of chemistry for a long, long time, but I was getting into trouble. I was getting into serious troubles, it the kind of trouble that even I could not ignore. So I started looking for solutions and I, you know, I, I went to moral superiors, I always did that. You know, I went to priests and doctors and, and, uh, and monsignors and, and psychiatrists and psychologists and gurus and spiritual mentors and naturopaths and chiropractors and policemen and lawyers and judges and I explained to them my problem, you know. <laughs> And some of them had uh, a lot of learning. I mean, they had a lot of things on their walls saying they knew about us, and they would say, this is what you should do about your problem. Well, if somebody points a finger at me, I'd bite it off at the knuckle. I don't know about you. But I decided if I could find a good woman, that would help me, and I found her in an elevator, and uh, we were both going to rehearse a show that we were in. We were doing a touring show of a Broadway musical, and she was a little dancer, and she was the cutest thing I have ever seen in my life. She was a little blonde with dimples, and I saw her dancing in her little leotard, and I went, oh, my God, you know, and, uh, and, and she saw me, and, and, and we did that, you know, that eye lock, that, 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 that horrifying moment when a pre al recognizes potential. <laughs> you know, she knew I'd be perfect with a little work. And uh, and so we started our dance of death, you know. And uh, and I married my solution, but I didn't tell her. And that's not fair to do that, you know. It's really not fair to to marry your savior without letting them know that that's what their job description is. And uh, and so she set about to kind of straighten me out. Well, I was unstraightable. I mean, you know, uh, you know, it, it, it didn't work, but we sure tried. And uh, we did a we did a tour of a show that took us out to California and it was going to be better in California and so uh, we got married and she settled down. (laughs) And then she, now see, drunks don't marry teetotalers. I didn't know anybody who didn't drink. I certainly wasn't going to marry anybody who didn't drink. And she drank. God, she could really drink. It was great. We had a ball. We just, partied and had a good time, and shortly after we got married, she had a sip of something one night and said, this is boring, and put it down the coffee table and never drank again, and then she noticed that I drank, and then the trouble started, you know, and she started to try to, to do, you know, to get, <laughs> I don't know about you, but <clears throat> I declared myself an alcoholic when I was 18 years old. I said the phrase that only an alcoholic says, if you've said it, you're a drunk, If you've ever heard anybody say it, you're listening to a drunk, and the phrase is, I can control my drinking. Social drinkers never say that. Social drinkers, if they do something stupid whilst drinking, they stop drinking. Isn't that weird? (laughs) So I started at 18 years old. To control and enjoy my drinking. The great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The big book talks about it. And I don't know about you, but I never got control and enjoy in the same room at the same time ever. Ever, ever. When I was controlling my drinking, I was was certainly not enjoying it. I mean, when somebody suggests to me, you're going to drink two drinks tonight, my first question is, how big are the glasses? (laughs) And the only way that I'd ever enjoy drinking is wildly out of control. I mean, I just... Love getting ripped, bombed, blasted, smashed, crushed. I mean, all those wonderful things we describe that heavenly state of being bombed out of our minds. I just love it. I'm the guy that's standing stark naked on the highest hill at 3 o'clock in the morning, howling at the moon. You know, just... Woo-hoo! I mean, that's how I drank, man. I mean, you know, it's the only way to go. I mean, you know, I've never sifted anything in my life. I had two pieces of pie tonight, for God's sake. I mean, you know... After I skipped the potatoes. (laughs) I mean, all I've ever wanted is just one more. Drink, girl, break. You know, just one more. I just want a little bit more than my fair share. (laughs) So anyway, it got nuts in our house. And I mean, it wasn't too terrible. I mean, people who didn't know that I drank too much thought that I was crazy, and so I was becoming socially inconvenient. God knows what I would do at a dinner party after I'd had too many drinks, you know. Sometimes I was inclined to tell a hostess exactly what I thought of her boring menu and the fat Nazi she was married to. And you don't get invited back, you know. Stuff like that would happen, you know. A lovely dinner party with me floating naked in the pool. You know, just perfect. You know, just, oh, come on. You know, it, so uh, our, our life was shrinking, as, as you can well imagine. I also was a blackout drinker by this time. I want you to know that I never quit drinking from the time I started until the day before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. I never quit drinking. I cut down. I changed recipes, but I never stopped. I drank every day. Uh, I didn't get drunk every day, but I drank every day. But I was having some pretty severe blackouts, and we were living in California, and I was driving. And the amazing thing about the denial of that is I didn't realize what that entailed until I was five years sober. Five years sober, I was standing outside my house in the pouring rain in my bathrobe one morning looking for the newspaper. And I thought, what the hell am I doing here? I don't care about the news that much. And bam, it hit me. It was a ritual for my drinking. Every day and every morning, no matter how hungover I was, I got up, went out there, picked up the paper, walked back up the driveway, and made one quick turn around the car to see if there were any blood stains or dents. You know, and I mean, I can now that I I, I acknowledge that I remember that awful feeling of of just coming around coming around the fender on the on the driver's side. You know, just. To see if the if the if the front end was caved in, you know? you know. We live like that. We absorb that. We make that part of our lives. It's appalling to me the stuff that we do in order to justify drinking the way we did. Anyway, on April 23rd, nineteen seventy-four, I was arrested, dead drunk. I was taken down, photographed, you know, fingerprinted and released on my own recognizance with the front of my pants from the waistband and my knees, soaked in my own urine. That got my attention. I went home and luckily she wasn't home. She was off saving somebody who didn't need to be saved. And and I had to look at what had happened. We couldn't do that tag team that we were so great at. We'd get together and make it their fault. But she wasn't there. And for the first time in my life, I put together my behavior with my drinking. I connected them in my mind and until that second, I wasn't an alcoholic. This is a self-diagnosed disease. It didn't matter how many people suggested I drank too much. It didn't matter if there had been interventions or any of that kind of stuff until I said I was an alcoholic. I wasn't an alcoholic. That's what's so horrifying about this disease is I see people dying of it. I've had people die of it that I know who were not alcoholic because they didn't say they were. And I said, I wonder if I'm an alcoholic. I wonder if that's what it is. And I really really thought, oh, God, it was the last thing I could grab onto, you know, because I had done everything else. I had a house in the Hollywood Hills. I had a pretty dog, a pedigree, you know, a pretty wife, a pedigree dog, an old Mercedes. I mean, I had all the stuff to keep from looking like a drunk, and I didn't look like one. But until that night, and I could not avoid what the conclusions were. The next day, I took aside somebody that I was working with. I'd been working with her for a year. She had six years of sobriety, and she was having a hell of a good time. She was in AA. She told everybody she was, made no bones about it, and she could handle stuff that was just a little beyond me. I was selling real estate at the time. She worked in real estate, and she was a real example of this fellowship. And I, uh, I took her aside at 11 o'clock in the morning on April 24th, 1974, and I said the last words. I said, I'm an alcoholic, and i got 20 minutes before I go to pieces. And she heard the screaming. Then she dropped everything, and she canceled all her appointments. She took me to her place. She sat me down at her dining room table, and she 12-stepped me. Now, I heard the plea tonight for, uh, for more 12-step workers, and I'm really thrilled about that because uh, it's amazing to have been sober as long as I have. You see the kind of ebbs and flows in alcoholism and the trends in alcoholism, you know. I got sober when Alcoholics Anonymous was still sleazy. I mean, you didn't go running around to dinner parties saying, I just joined AA. I mean, it was real embarrassing to be in this thing in 1974. It was uncool, let me tell you. And then sometime in my sobriety, the insurance companies in the medical profession decided we were big business, and they started building these facilities for us. Now, we're alcoholics, so of course we just burned them out eventually, you know? What's happened recently is the insurance companies have said, that's it. We're not paying for any more 28-day vacations for these pigs. You know, come on. How many times a year are they going to get sober? You know? I just love it. The practicing alcoholics in the United States of America have done the thing that nobody else can do. We've broken the insurance companies. They can't take it anymore. They're saying, that's it, man. We'll handle seven-day detoxes and then give them to the other guys, you know? And that's what's happening all over the continent, is those 28 days are going down to seven-day detoxes. So we're getting the new ones. We're getting the wet ones. It's fabulous. We're going to go back to having grand mal seizures in AA meetings. <laughs> Let me tell you, that used to happen a lot when I got sober. It was great. You know, you'd be at a meeting and somebody would be talking about how grateful they are and the guy next to you will go, oh, 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 and flop over, you know? Man, it makes you instantly grateful, just like, boom, you know? Whoa, am I glad that ain't me, you yeah. know? Fantastic. The old-timers, when I was around, used to carry cut-off wooden spoons. They are about this long. they buy a wooden spoon and cut off the handle. And some guy would go to grandma's seizure, and they'd just stick the spoon in his mouth so he wouldn't swallow his tongue. And then they'd call an ambulance, you know? And the meetings would just go on. I was at one time, Chuck Chamberlain was talking at a meeting, and I mean, everybody was at rapt attention to the old dude. And some guy went into a seizure, and he didn't stop talking. I mean, not, you know, they just took care of it, took the guy out. And, the meeting went on. It was just something that happened. I was one of the group that they gave half a cup of coffee to, because I uh, I was just a little jumpy when I got sober. It was just a little quick, you know. <laughs> see, I had received some real bad news the first day that I was sober. When when Suzanne Twell sent me, I explained to her that I understood that it was the, uh, the that it was the drinking that was the problem, but that uh, what I felt I should do was kind of touch down into AA on a little cloud of Valium, you know, just kind of. Because I felt that probably the withdrawal would kill me. And I kind of tapering off the prescription drugs, I felt, would be a good way to do it. And she said, honey, let me tell you how what we describe sobriety as. And I said, oh, okay. And she said, here in Southern California, sobriety is clean and sober. This was 25 years ago. I said... What exactly does that mean? And she said that means we don't drink alcohol, we don't take any self-administered, mind-altering chemicals that affect us from the neck up. (laughs) I was real disappointed at that news, let me tell you. She said that is what they had told her when she got sober, which was six years before. So that kind of news has been floating around this fellowship for at least 31, 32 years. So, i detoxed in these rooms. I didn't have insurance, so I had to, you know. I couldn't afford to drop out of my life for a while. I had to work. I went to work the the next day after my first meeting. I didn't know you had an option. So, I I didn't go to the professionals. I came to the experts. And uh, you guys were still walking around with with, uh, pockets full of hard candy. Uh, And... um, That first afternoon, uh, Suzanne gave me uh, orange juice and Karo syrup. I'll never forget that. We were all popping a lot of calcium and magnesium to keep from flipping out and and drinking gallons of coffee and smoking our brains out and getting sober. And uh, in the month of April in, in Hollywood, there were 20 of us that got sober, and five of them are dead, and the other 15 of us are all sober we did it by getting into the center of Alcoholics Anonymous immediately. It's harder to fall out of than off of. We got into the middle as fast as we could because we all recognized that we were in real trouble. I always went to a meeting in a sports jacket and a tie. I, why I will, I don't know, you know, but I was about seven days sober and they asked me to read chapter five and I got up and read it and the chair said it was the first time she'd ever heard it read in one breath. My first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous was exactly as I feared. It was in a church basement. It had gray walls. The low ceiling was filled with smoke. And all those people I never would have drank with were there. And, I I mean, it was just, it was like being dropped into a shark tank. I've never seen so many teeth coming at me in my life. It was just, it must have been a real slow night because you were real glad to see me. And I thought, oh, my God. It was like being stoned to death with fridge magnets. They were... If you say, easy justice, keep coming back. You know, all little phrases. I didn't know what the hell you were talking about. And, uh, <coughs> and I mean, and it, and it started. I mean, it just started. The first thing I did was I started washing cups. I started folding up chairs and emptying ashtrays and doing all that kind of, and I've been doing that stuff for 25 years. What I did was create sobriety traps for myself, because I'm the kind that comes here and, you know, I'm real noisy for the first six months, and then somebody says, has anybody seen Sean, you know? So I I have always, for the entire 25 years that I've been sober, had a commitment at a meeting. Because one of the things I figured out very early was that a good drunk usually took me about a week and a half. You know, I kind of roll into it and really go with it and recover from it. it, took about a week and a half. But if I have to sell a goddamn literature next Wednesday, I don't have time, you know? So I've had these dumb stings, these sobriety traps, cleanup committees, making coffee, buying literature, being treasurer, doing all that stuff. So I've got to be at least one place once a week, every week of my sobriety. And thank God for it, because there have been times in my sobriety when there was no reason not to drink. And if you stick around here long enough, you'll hit them too. You will hit them. You'll hit the moments when the fellowship is not there for you, when it's you and your God. And if you don't, have, if you if you haven't had this thing shoved down your throat uh, and have been working it for a while, you know you get blown away. I got my sponsors first, night that I was sober, and I started working the steps. Now the steps are. <sighs> The steps seem mysterious to a lot of people, but they're not really. The first step was fairly easy for me to, uh, you know, fairly easy for me to take. I mean, I had, I had to admit that once I had a drink I could not predict my behavior, I could not predict how it would end up. I was always amazed at those guys who could stop off after after work and have a beer and go home, you know. I'd stop off and have a beer and go home in August. And yeah. So, I mean, the first part, and my life was unmanageable. I mean, I came at Alcoholics Anonymous in a $250 sports jacket, French gabardine slacks, Italian loafers, a designer tie, and fingerprint ink. What's wrong with this picture, you know? So the first step was relatively easy to take. I mean, there aren't many social drinkers who know how to puke through their nose, you know. <laughs> the second step was a little harder because I talked about, you know, a, a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, and that was dangerously close to getting to that God thing, which I was in deep trouble with. But it was suggested to me that somebody with 20 minutes more sobriety than me was a power greater than me, than the big book was, a meeting like this was a power greater than me. These were all powers greater than me that were designed to lead me ultimately to what I needed to do, but they would do in the meantime. And restoring me to sanity was. Troublesome because I'm a nice upper upper middle class drunk and we don't go to funny farms. We don't do paper slippers and no doorknobs on this side. We go to therapists and talk about stress. I'm feeling a little bipolar today. And they give us nice medication. And I was going to meetings in Hollywood. I mean, there were some serious crazies there. I'd been assigned a new best friend named Rich, and Rich couldn't talk, and Rich couldn't drive, and I had a car, and I couldn't shut up, so he was my new best friend. (laughs) And we went to this very spiffy meeting on a Friday night called Rodeo Drive. Now, it's in Beverly Hills, and that's the kind of meeting that you don't wear the same thing the second week, you know? (laughs) Every Beverly Hills caterer that got sober would be, like, the the refreshment person for this meeting. One time I went in, and there was an ice sculpture there. I mean, (laughs) it. It's a pretty wild meeting. And this was the 70s, so we had big hair in the 70s. And and Rich had kind of thinning hair, so it took him a while to look appropriate. And so I was waiting for him to do his hair. And he was kind of thinning in front, so what he had to do was he kind of tortured it all forward and then sprayed it and then bent it over and then patted it all down. So he had this kind of hair helmet you could see through. And... Uh, It took a while, and uh, while he was doing it, I looked through an old medical dictionary that he had, and I I looked up a definition of insanity, and uh, out of it popped a phrase. It was a big, long definition, but there was one phrase that enabled me to take the second step, and it was a medical definition, quote, a seeming inability to learn from one's mistakes, close quote. (laughs) I'll just lay that on you one more time in case you didn't get it a seeming inability to learn from one's mistakes. I took the second step right there, right then. I clearly qualified. My life had been a series of coming to in the same situation over and over and over again and never examining how I got there, just trying to figure out a way to get the hell out. You know, my philosophy of life is a moving target is harder to hit. So I let her, as a practicing alcoholic, we tend to lead lead unexamined life, you know, I don't want to delve too deeply into my life, man, because it may fall apart on me. So the second step <coughs> was there. I um, the third one was the big one, and, and you know the third the third step is <coughs> is the thing that's absolutely critical for all of us, particularly those of us in the room who have who've been here a while. After the after the initial kind of flush of working the twelve steps and and, you know, things getting better and finding a relationship and all that kind of stuff, then the kind of day-to-day living in and, and sobriety and, and, and developing principles and, and attempting to change as human beings, the things that keep us sober are absolutely contingent on the taking of the third step. Carl Jung, who was a fairly bright guy and... Uh, uh, said that there was just absolutely no hope for alcoholism, uh, any recovery from alcoholism, unless the alcoholic himself had some kind of profound spiritual experience. Now, luckily, the big book at the end in the uh, appendix talks about uh, an educational form of of a spiritual experience. See, I I thought a spiritual I thought a spiritual experience was a spiritual event. You know, I kept waiting for the wind to blow up my butt like Bill Wilson, but that has never happened to me. You know, I've never seen any of that kind of stuff. I have just had this kind of ongoing sense of things getting better and that obviously there was something going on in my life that is inexplicable to me. So sooner or later, all of us have got to come to terms with this higher power thing if we're going to stay sober for the rest of our lives. And, you know, the old timers talk about one day at a time. They forget to put on the end of it, you know, one day at a time the rest of your life. And sooner or later, you come to realize that that's what this is about. And in order to face that prospect, I had to take the journey. We've all got to take the journey. And it doesn't matter what we call this higher power thing. It really, absolutely doesn't matter if it's God, Allah, Alway, Jehovah, you know, the Christ, uh, Buddha, force of nature. uh, It doesn't really matter, you know. It's just that... Sooner or later, we all come to the realization that there is something within us that, that, that we must find that gives us a capacity for a higher form of being, a nobility maybe, a goodness if you want. <clears throat> and once that's discovered, then we have to go on the journey. And the journey for us alcoholics is inward and outward at the same time. The problem with us is with we become too spiritual and start just going inward, we become self-involved, to the point where we're no earthly good to anybody else. Now, the wonderful thing about the 12 steps is that it allows us to build a spiritual life that suits us. We become our own architects for our own spiritual life. Some people return to religion. Some people join new religions. Some people, like me, find a spiritual life within Alcoholics Anonymous. There are all kinds of franchises out there. Pick one you like. um, But in order for me to nurture this kind of pilot light or this kind of little flame or this microchip within me, the nuns call it a soul, um, (coughs) in order to keep that thing alive, I have to become more concerned with you than I am with me. I have to become... I have to focus on you because it has never done me any good. Introspection damn near killed me. Um So, what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous is we we help each other out, we reassure each other, we encourage each other, we love each other, and what it does is it is it builds that that flame within us, that that thing within us. And at some point in sobriety for a lot of us and, and a lot of you, as you know, the inside and the outside start to match, they start to match up, so that the service work, no longer is something that our sponsors make us do, uh, or sponsoring guys, you know, whatever we do, it starts to become integral to us. It starts to become second nature. And when that kind of stuff happens is when the real joy of sobriety happens for us. And what it is is an adventure. If I were to stand here and say I drank like a pig and I got sober and I've had a fabulous life ever since, that's a fairy tale. Alcoholics Anonymous promises a great deal more than that. Alcoholics Anonymous promises you an adventure. And a really great adventure has really good parts to it and really lousy parts to it. And that's what my life has been. My life has been and continues to be an adventure. And I made the decision to turn my will and my life over to God that I did not understand and still don't to this day. If I understood God, it would be a greatly diminished higher power and probably not of much use to you. So I made the decision to take the adventure, to turn my will and my life over. Now, that doesn't mean that I became a spiritual human being. It just means I made a decision. <clears throat> I hear people say, oh, took the third step, turned it over. That's spiffy. but what did you do? If I decide to buy a house, I don't own a house. If I decide to buy a house, I buy a newspaper and I look in the ads, and then I pick out a real estate broker and I go talk to him or her. And then we go out and look at houses and eventually we find a house that we like and we make an offer and we make a counter offer and eventually we agree on it and then we go to the bank and then we try and get a loan and there's a whole escrow period and we do title searches and insurance and all that kind of stuff. And eventually I'm handed the keys to the house now, and that's the same with the third step. The decision is the third step. The keys to the house are in the twelfth step. So if I'm setting out on this adventure, if I'm setting on a great journey, then what am I going to take with me? If I'm going to have to face this adventure, what have I got? What is the equipment that I've got? And that's what the fourth step is about. What I look at is my condition, my baggage. Where am I going? Where have I been? What is my experience to take this kind of an adventure? And so I wrote all that stuff out, like they tell us, in and uh, and then i went to my sponsor now they talk about about sharing this with your you know yourself your god and your and another human being you know when the big book was written in 1935 i believe it was the first edition or no 19 late 30s uh, it, it, it says the first 100 people well well you know film was a bit of a Bill was a bit of a con, and uh, there were actually only about 40 people who were sober, but he decided to include the wives and the children, too, so we could get 100, you know. God love him. I just love him. <coughs> he gives us great hope that we don't have to go that far, you know. Um, but there were a lot of people around who had had a lot of sober experience, and so they suggested that you, you know, maybe do your inventory with a priest or, or you know, you know, a doctor or something like that, but, uh, and that, that, uh, that idea appeals to me to take all that information to somebody that I don't know and will never see again and do my fifth step, you know. Whew, got rid of that, and then there's still nobody who knows me. It's just perfect, you know. But, uh, there's a lot of people around here who take a serious responsibility of sponsoring people and have a lot of sober experience, and I had one of those guys in my life, and so I took my fifth step with him. Then I told him all about myself, and he shared his life and some of the things that he had done and, and, uh, and then unfortunately I saw him the next day <laughs> and the next and the next and the next and here was this guy in my life who knew all about me that makes me extremely uncomfortable I don't mind being vulnerable in flashes you know but I don't want, I don't want anybody with all the evidence hanging around Especially when he would say, now listen, I want you to go over and talk to that guy, because he's got a problem like you have, you need to share. I'd say, wait a minute, you told him? And of course he did. And what happened was, because of that, first of all, the phone calls to my sponsor went from a half an hour to ten minutes, because we didn't have to do all the background on each of the problems. He had the whole story. And, uh, and we got to a whole lot of stuff. So the guide told me what I needed to lose and what I needed to retain. And that's what a sponsor is. Not a god or a guru, but a guide. And so we set out on the journey. <coughs> and the journey... <laughs> and the dances started. Good night. Um... <coughs> um, that happened. That... <laughs> That happened at a conference I was at, one guy. Some guy was up here spilling his guts, and the chairman handed him a little note that said, the dance is starting. Please uh, wrap it up. I love that the guy was talking about his wife dying of cancer or something. It was a particularly sensitive moment. It was wonderful. But anyway, um, so the sponsor says, okay, this is the baggage you've got to pick up. This is the baggage you got to lose. And those are the, you know, the, the shortcomings and the and the... The 6th and 7th step, and so I've been working on those. Um, I continue to work on those. I'm absolutely amazed that I'm still... I'd, one, uh, The 6th and 7th step are required steps for the first 25 years, as far as I know. So, uh, I mean, I, that may be bad news to you, but uh, that's the way it goes. I mean, as soon as I get one taken care of, another one pops to the surface. It's unbelievable. And then I did the eighth step. I wrote down all the people that I needed to clear the path with. I needed to, you know, I needed to clean up the campsite before I could move on to the next one. And uh, so there was a lot of damage control that I needed to do. And there was a lot of people I needed to talk to at a lot of institutions. And I paid off a lot of debts by putting five bucks in an envelope every month. And they took years. And there was a lot of damage to people around me. One of the most important questions I had to my, my sponsor was, how am I going to make amends to my wife and to my and to my close family? And he said, you're going to be sober for a very long time. That's how you're going to do it. Because they are going to remain unimpressed with your progress. <clears throat> and indeed, they have. I was very lucky. My wife went to Al-Anon the, a week after I got sober and has been an active member of Al-Anon ever since. She's in Wisconsin right now, sharing in a at a conference uh, talking about Al-Anon. And let me tell you, an Al-Anon is not merely someone who's married to an alcoholic or or the mother or the father or the daughter or the son of an alcoholic. An Al-Anon is someone who, who attends Al-Anon meetings, who works the 12 steps of Al-Anon, practices the principles and the traditions of Al-Anon, sponsors people in Al-Anon and uh, is an active member of that group. And my life has been graced for for a long, long time by just such a member, and I'm, I'm really great. I love al I love Al-Anon so much that I don't go to Al-Anon meetings. I, I think that Al-Anons need a safe place from a guy like me. I, uh, you know, I'm, I've got a little boy lost act that you can take on the road. You know, I can just, I can just get their little hearts flutter. I kind of stumble into the room and go, oh my gosh, hi. You know, and they just go, oh, well, let me take care of, you know. So uh, so I don't do that. <laughs> Anyway, my wife is tired of my old nightclub act anyway, so she... Eleanors <laughs> actually terrified me because they they know... I mean, they've seen me coming a mile away. But anyway, um, so the ninth step I've, I've done, and, and the wonderful thing about doing the ninth step was that the freedom and the promises they talk about on page 84 actually do come true. And then we got into the tenth step, which is looking at my progress on a daily basis, and I do that. And what I do on a daily basis as I say, okay, at the end of the day, what did I do today that I approve of and what did I do today that I don't approve of? And the stuff that I don't approve of, I try to set right And the stuff that I approve of, I let go of. (coughs) We live our lives in 24-hour compartments. We give up our victories and our defeats at the end of each day. I don't know about you, but I tended to string out my victories until they were real thin, you know, and the defeats, I tended to beat myself up for a long time over. And the 11th step, of course, is trying to continually nurture this flame and this, this connection to, uh, mainly to you, uh, I, I, I do meditate, I, I, I pray on a daily basis, I have a kind of ongoing conversation with, with my higher power just all through the day, I just kind of, you know, it looks like I'm talking to myself, but I'm not, and, uh, and then I do a meditation at the beginning and the end of, uh, of each day, what I do is I sit in a comfortable chair and get quiet and I concentrate on a phrase. Um, be still and know that I am God, and what i do is i i break that phrase down into each word because it 's a real simple thing for me to do i'm 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 'm I'm, I'm so bright i 'm stupid you know you know what i mean you know you know i'm 'm so intellectual that i don 't have any common sense at all and uh so i uh, I break that down, and what I do is, I, I, the first word is be. I just sit there, I be. I listen to the traffic outside, the gurgling in my stomach, the radio from somewhere else. You know, there's all that stuff that's going on, but I just be, and then I be still. I just stop moving. Just stop moving. Stop twitching, stop flicking around, just stop moving. Just breathe in and breathe out. Be still. Be still and know, and what I do is I close my eyes and imagine my mind opening up. My whole persona just kind of opening up. Be still and know. Know that I'm part of everything, that I'm part of the, the earth and the sky and everything around me. Be still and know that I am. And that is that that voice that's always been within us, you know, that what is it, conscience or or, or good sense or whatever. That 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 voice that's always said, Whoa, wait a minute, or yeah, this seems like a good idea. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know that I am and acknowledge that that's going on within me. And then the voice identifies itself. Be still and know that I am God. And what it is is my connection to you. I've never been able to find it in churches. I believe that we're, we're, we're made in the image and likeness of God. I don't think we all look like God. I mean, look at... You know, there's some pretty different looking people around here, you know. But I can see the family resemblance really keenly in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. For me, it's very clear. I can see the family resemblances in, in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. When a little old lady says to the 15-year-old punk chick who's got half her head shaved off and pierced everywhere, you know, and tattooed, come over and sit next to me, dear. I can see the family resemblance. I can see how she looks like God. I can see even the guy who gets on the bus and goes... Cross town to central office to buy the literature and then brings it back on the bus. I can see the family resemblance. I can see it, the person who comes an hour early and puts the coffee out and makes sure that the chairs are set up. I can see the family resemblance. I can see it when we're being kind to each other because I believe we resemble God when we love each other. When we're being loving, that's how we resemble it. And you see un- unbelievable kindnesses in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I love you for that. And then the 12th step comes along. And the 12th step is three parts to it. You know, the first one is having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. That's the promise in the second step. That's the restoration to sanity. A spiritual awakening is a restoration to sanity. Now, I understand that there are people in Alcoholics Anonymous that require psychotropics in order to be sober. There are people who require medication. I just believe that there aren't as many as the medical profession would like us to think. I certainly manifested every psychological disorder known to man when I arrived in Alcoholics Anonymous, most most medical professionals who have ethics realize that you can't double diagnose an alcoholic in his first year of sobriety one of the reasons that I've stayed sober for 25 years and there's lots of reasons is that I never want to have to get sober again as long as I live I don't know about your first year of sobriety but mine was a nightmare you know I was crazier than I had ever been in my life. I was certainly bipolar or manic-depressive. I mean, I was either ecstatic about being sober or contemplating suicide. I was flipping up and down, sometimes within 15-minute increments. <laughs> Six months sober, I was crazier than I'd ever been in my life. Uh, I was paranoid. I knew there were large groups of people talking about me. <laughs> they were all sitting in rooms of alcoholics and I You know, oh, there he is again, you know. I had multiple personality disorder. <laughs> I love that one. You know, of course, who do you want me to be? You know. <laughs> you know, it, We used to call it people pleasing. Now it's got a really nice disorder thing to it. You know. <laughs> the old timers when I got sober said said if you work the program, you won't have those high highs and those low lows. You'll live in a middle range of emotions. Those high highs and those low lows are what are now called manic depression. Now, some people do have some chemical disorders that, are, that that bring that on. Of course, you know, if you stop drinking huge amounts of fermented sugar, you tend to have body chemistry kind of going out of orbit, too, you know. That's why those old farts gave us hard candy when we first got sober, you know. That's why they... They said, drink all the coffee you want, because we have blasted out the synapses that give us the pleasure zones, you know? They knew that kind of stuff, and they didn't know what they knew, <laughs> you know? You know, well, I went, to, I went to my sponsor in the first year and said, I have some severe psychological problems, and he said, what we're going to do is we're going to work the 12 steps on the whole package for the first year and get you sober, and then we're going to take the individual things after that, and we'll work the 12 steps on each of them individually, and if that doesn't work, then we'll send you to some professionals. And it has been unnecessary for me to go to a professional in 25 years. Because the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are a perfect therapy for my kind of alcoholic. And the more I talk about myself and the more you talk about yourself, I find I am a very typical garden-variety alcoholic. There's nothing unique. There's nothing special. There's nothing interesting about me. So having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, I started to feel sane. I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. I mean, there's stuff after a while that just doesn't cut it in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. I just beat up my wife, but I'm sober. I'm sorry, pal. That doesn't cut it, you know. I'm so crazy. I just shot three guys, but I'm sober. Uh Uh-uh. No, wait a minute. Come on. You know, I'm not crazy. I'm selfish. I'm self-centered. I'm self-sabotaging. I'm self-justifying. I'm self-promoting. I'm self-self, self-self, self-self. That's my problem. And so, what I gotta do is, I gotta sponsor a bunch of jerks. You know? I gotta wash coffee cups. (laughs) I gotta mop floors. I gotta keep getting out of me. Because if I get into me, I cave in. I collapse on myself. I implode. And so, I carry the message whenever I can, however I can. And you know what? It's important, it's really important about this Alcoholics Anonymous thing that we don't get stuck in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, there's a lot of guys who are real big deals in Alcoholics Anonymous who have no life outside of this fellowship. You know, that's great for them, but it ain't great for the fellowship. Because the most effective 12-step work we can do is when somebody has no idea that we're alcoholics. I had it happen to be not long enough. I was sitting in a very nice dinner party. I live in West Vancouver, which is the most affluent... <laughs> community in Canada total accident I mean you know but I'm sitting at this very spiffy dinner party and some guy says I wish I could quit drinking and I said oh man I know how you feel and he said well you don't drink do you and I said no no he said well you know I, I really got a problem I said oh yeah I know well he said well did you used to drink I said oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah I used to drink and he said well don't I said I had to quit man and he said how did you do I said well I went to Alcoholics Anonymous." he said why I said, because I'm an alcoholic. And he said, you're an alcoholic? He had no idea. Isn't that fantastic? I didn't look like one. I wasn't acting like one. I mean, I was like a regular guy at this dinner party. And that's when we're most effective, when we're participating members in our community, in our businesses, in our families, in our children's lives, when we're out there, man, and we're walking around examples that this thing works. That's what Suzanne was to me the day that I got sober. She was a walking example that this thing was great. And I practiced the principles in all my affairs. Ah, ha, ha, there's the big one. And there's a whole lot of people that it stops just before we get to that. It's real easy for me to stand in Cincinnati here with my little laryngitis voice and tell you what a great guy I am. Because I'm going to jump on a plane tomorrow morning, and you're never going to see me driving. <laughs> Which seems to be the greatest challenge to my program. And I mean, I'm like any one of these guys who talks at the, you know, that you import to talk at a podium. I mean, you know, I talk a slightly better program than I work. My prayers is it's only slightly. Slightly. You know, but I mean, I'm still I'm still capable of, you know, with 25 years of sobriety and spirituality of doing the one finger salute on a freeway. and I still lose it, you know, and things go well in my life and things don't go well in my life. And how I handle them is how hooked I am into the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous, whether I take these principles from these meetings to my home, to my family room, to my bedroom, to my workplace. If, 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 you, if you think you're a spiritual giant in Alcoholics Anonymous, I've got a challenge for you. I want you to go from point A to point B on a freeway and stay in the same lane.
1: <laughs> I don't know anybody who's done it.
0: What's my life like right now? <clears throat> You know it's funny. I, I, you know we all have areas that are that are ongoing areas that are that just seem to be problematic for us. And mine seems to be in the work area. I have always, I've I've always done a whole lot of things. I've been an actor and I've been a in advertising and sold real estate and and I mean I've just had somebody asked my daughter what I do for a living and she says this week and. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I've never had any ego about what I did for a living. I just wanted as as the food got on the table and things have gone well. I've, I've, been, I've been rich in Alcoholics Anonymous and I've been poor in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I prefer the problems of being rich to the problems of being poor but they all got problems. You know, one of the things that I've, I can tell you is that is that lots of stuff don't fix you and it don't protect you. Um, but, uh, and right now I'm, 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 I'm going through a whole transition stuff at work and it's, and it's tight and it's tough and I, I got a 17-year-old daughter who's Graduated. She's a class of 2000, and I mean, honest to God, graduation costs thousands now. You know, they got the pictures and the dresses and the trips and the bips and the bops and the limos and oh my God, you know. And uh, and she wants to go to college, and I got to put her through college, and I've been through a. a we we uh, we downsized a couple of years ago, which means I went broke. And. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and it's been a struggle. And uh, so I'm doing, I'm, I'm, I'm doing some, you know, writing and advertising and training and, you know, doing all kinds of things. I, you know, one of the, one of the things I have to do in, in the good times and in the bad times, I've got to stay in the now. And I've been sponsoring guys for a long, long time and trying to teach them about how to stay in the now. <clears throat> one of the things I love about Alcoholics Anonymous is one-year birthday cakes. People say stuff on their first year birthday cake that just absolutely amazes me. I think that's that's specifically when God does the talking. Because, I mean, they can't possibly know what they're saying with a year of sobriety, you know. But I was down in L.A., and I went to a meeting, and this little, she was like 16 years old, got up. I mean, she was a little street kid from Hollywood. And taking her one-year cake, I mean, she was a miracle. And she said, what I try to do every day is stay where my hands are. I mean, I've been trying to teach guys how to do that for 25 years, and this little 60-year-old just told me how to do it. You just stay where your hands are. You know, if I don't go anywhere other than where my hands are, I'm not in trouble. So I've been doing that, you know. But but I I'm I'm an actor. Now I I let me tell you what kind of actor I am. I'm I'm what's known as a day player. And what a day player is 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 Vancouver is the third largest production center in North America. There's L.A., New York, and Vancouver. There's a lot of television shows, a lot of movies, all that kind of stuff. So they use day players a lot. Guys like me, I, I play doctors gone bad a lot.
1: <laughs>
0: doctors who seem like nice guys but are actually, you know, stealing organs. You know, that kind of guy. I was... <clears throat> I was Scully's cancer, cancer doctor on X-Files. Uh, it, it was a one-day deal. I mean, I disappeared, and they, they didn't know whether I was an alien or not. I mean, it was, you know. But, <clears throat> see, if I don't see where my hands are, I, I get into trouble. See, like, I, I, I'll, get a, I'll get a call, and, and my agent will say, listen, I want you to go over and, and read for this. They want you to play um, a, a bank manager. It's, it's four lines, and uh, be there at... at, at uh, 10.30, so I get up you know I'm getting ready and you know it's nine o'clock and I'm starting to think about you know I've been rehearsing my four lines and you know and all that kind of stuff and I'm getting in the car and'm and I'm driving over there you know and I'm you know and I'm kind of psyching myself up for it you know you know and I and I know I'm gonna go in there and you know I'm gonna do the four lines and they're going oh wow this is great I mean my god perfect bank manager you know I so so I get the part on the bank manager in this series you know and I do it and and when it's aired one of the producers says you know they're there's something about that bank manager guy, you know, why don't, why don't we make that kind of a, a recurring part, you know, have him on every so often, you know, have the hero go back to the bank manager trying to get money, you know, it'd be nice. And then that, that happens for me, you know, and, and so I, you know, about every month or so I, I do another day on the series, you know, and play the bank manager, and, and pretty soon, it's, you know, they start, you know, I guess it would be seven, eight lines, and then, and then there's this episode with the bank manager, you know, a whole episode where the guy gets involved with the bank manager and, and and it's and it's so good that, that, that I get nominated for an Emmy, you know? Just and, and, and the producers say, Wow, I mean and I get the Emmy of course and, and so they decide to do a spin off, you know, a new series called The Bank Manager and, and <laughs> Hey, you know? And the first season, I mean, it just skyrockets. It's just this just this wild hit, you know, and, and uh and I'm nominated again for another Emmy, in which of course I win, you know. And uh, and in the summertime I do a modest film, a kind of arty little film that that garners a lot of attention, and I get an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor, and which which leads to getting a whole lot more money the next season for the bank manager, which now you know I, I'm, I'm you know starting to be asked to be on talk shows and things like that. And uh, and then the next thing I do I do a, a a big a big movie with Pierce Brosnan, you know, and uh, and it's it's one of those. You know, million dollar thing. And, and I, I play a villain with the next James Bond picture, and and I get a lot of notice on that, and uh, and and get another really wonderful picture where I'm nominated for an Academy Award, and I get it. And well, buy, of course, by this time I've had to move back to Los Angeles, and, and we buy a house up on Mulholland Drive, a really nice house, and and I get to indulge in one of my favorite uh, things, which is antique cars. And so I, I buy a you know I buy a really beautiful old. Uh, Old Bugatti, and uh, and and uh, and we take a vacation to the south of France, and there's this wonderful little village, and we stay in this hotel, and down the road is this little farmhouse, and we buy it. You know, and, and it's, it's just perfect and so now I'm working in LA and I'm doing movies and, and, you know, and, and, and hosting things and things are going really, really well and we expand the house and I get a few more things. I get a Dusenberg and a couple of Bull Packards and, uh, and, uh, uh rolls or two and, 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 the, and the little town in the south of France is in trouble and because I made so much money on the last big picture, we buy the village. And, and so then I said, says spend the summers there. Of course, you know, we drive through the village square and they come out. All the people come out from the shops and say, vive la chambre, vive la chambre. I mean, they're crazy about it. I've saved the village. I mean, you know. And and what's happened is I'm getting award after award. I go back to New York and I do a a Broadway play. And of course, I'm, I'm not ready for an award for that. And eventually what they do is they give me a lifetime achievement award on the Academy Awards because I have become in a very, very short time a legend within the industry and by that time I arrive for the audition and I go in and read the four lines and I don't get the
1: part <laughs> now, now I haven't lost a
0: four line part on a playing the bank manager I've lost the village in France I've lost the house in the long drive I've lost the complex, I've lost the work I've lost being a goddamn legend man <laughs> so it's really important for a guy like me to stay where my hands are To stay right here and right now with you. And that's what I'm trying to do. And the good times and the bad times are part of life. But overall, I wouldn't swapped anything. We have a couple of moments I would have liked to have changed, but overall, this life, if anything had been the tiniest bit different in my life, if I'd had made a different decision, if there had been a positive break instead of a negative one, I wouldn't be standing here tonight with you. And I'm really glad to be standing here tonight with you. I'm really honored to be part of this. I'm really honored to be part of of something that that is supporting your inner group as much as you are, that that to be with people who are actively involved in carrying the message and and making sure that the new people are finding a safe place to live and to grow, and providing us with a safe place to continue to grow. So I I came to you 25 years ago, and you've been my teachers ever since. You've been my teachers because you said the thing that nobody else had ever said to me. When I went to all the experts, they said, this is what you should do. When I came you, and told you who I was, you said, I know how you feel. And as soon as you said that, I knew I was safe. As soon as you say that, then I can listen and I can learn. And you didn't say this is what you should do. You said this is what I've done. Take what you can use. These are 12 suggested steps. You don't even have to take the steps. We have, but you don't have to take them if you don't want to. But this is what we've done. Take what you can use. And so I've done that. You've been my teachers. You've taught me everything. You've taught me how to be a worker. You've taught me how to be a husband. You've taught me how to be a father. You've taught me everything. Everything that I am that is good and positive and decent is what you've taught me. The little frightened, kind of shabby things about me and the things that I decided I didn't need to learn. And so I try to let you know who I am whenever I'm asked to perform this kind of an honor to tell you where I am and where I'm coming from and how I'm doing so I stand before you my teachers to say this is who I am so now you've heard it if you're going to judge me judge me gently although I know I have a long long way to go through your love and and your concern I've come a very long way and I'm very grateful God bless you